This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, breaking the stained glass window, language, storytelling, absolutism and censorship. (laughs) (laughs) And if you think those things don't go together, well, have we got an episode for you? (laughs) Essentially, this is a a caloose, which is like a a loose collection, um, but um, sort of alive. Um, This is a loose collection of stuff that has been annoying Jules. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say, this all came to a head recently with an article that probably most of our listeners will have heard about or encountered, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a rather sneery essay written about Brandon Sanderson in Wired by, I want to say, Joseph Kehi, I believe that's his name. Um, But we'll get to that in a bit, because I will get a bit ranty about that one. Okay. (laughs) Um, But essentially, this is a discussion on some of the weird things that have come up in the book community lately. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, now we're going to try not to make this too heavy because no one needs that at the moment, or really any time. Uh, but there is food <laughs> for thought here, so we will chat about these things, give our opinions, and then sort of throw open the doors for you guys to sort of chip in as well. Tell us what you think, and um, you know, make up your own your own minds. Yeah. Once again. Um whenever we do something that's more of an opinion piece we are literally saying this is our opinion madeline and i haven't discussed any of this beforehand so we might have different opinions from the get-go um and and obviously we're always willing to be to consider the other point of view and perhaps be wrong Uh, sometimes it's really easy to get entrenched in a specific opinion just because the way something has been presented to you is so anathema to how you look at things that you kind of get this blowback effect and really dig your heels in. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm immune to that because I'm sure I'm not. I don't think anybody is. Um, but I'm willing to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, you know, we are always willing to listen to perspectives from outside um, and to readjust what we believe or what or or how we see things based on new information so um nothing is set in stone (laughs) no the important thing is to be able to have the discussions um in an ideally a mature fashion and not have anything where someone gatekeeps it by saying no this is this is the way you must look at it if you're not with me you're against me kind of thing and that's it there can be no other opinion because i think that's a really problematic attitude to take yeah which can lead to worse things further down the line but anyway oh gotcha (laughs) okay so let's start off with the very simple question of is censorship ever a good or useful thing i mean if you want the short answer from me on that one i'm I'm largely coming down on the side of no (laughs) um but i mean i suppose there are areas where you would say that censorship is maybe a bit necessary for example when they're putting age ranges on films and things Mm. though yeah i I mean i guess it it also depends on how how do you define censorship well you know where does it go from being a guideline to uh being 
the complete removal of something. Yeah, I think when it becomes censorship is when someone comes in with their opinion and alters things and nobody can access the original or mm. they stop you getting it in the first place. And let's be perfectly clear here, there are things that we cannot access via the internet in the UK. Yeah, There are things you cannot access via the internet in America and there are a great deal many more things you cannot access via the internet in Russia and in China. Mm. So we already have people gatekeeping and I think it's worth being aware of that. Yeah. Um, that would all technically be censorship, obviously. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, but in terms of books, there's been obviously a very recent censorship uh, kind of conversation in terms of the republication of Roald Dahl's books by Penguin, um, who wanted to change um, some significant aspects of the writing. Well, I say significant. There were a few words they wanted to change, and then there were a few more words they wanted to change, etc. Until they were rewriting entire passages and altering the story. Mm. Yeah, it, it did actually get to that point because that I think that's the problem with censorship. Someone comes in and they they get their ruler out. This actually happened to me. Okay, sidebar. Put a pin in that, and I'll come back to it. But <laughs> sidebar. But when I was reading Shakespeare at school, obviously a convent school, when I was thirteen. The mother superior used to make a point of coming around when we started a new Shakespeare play and she would check to see whether there were any aspects of the play that she didn't want us to read, which had been correctly, shall we say, edited. Mm -hmm. And we were reading A Midsummer Night's Dream and there were there's aspects in that play, obviously, that refer to sort of sexual congress. She had us all take out our rulers and pencils and neatly rule through the lines in our books that she didn't want us to consider. Wow, okay. So, and, and this happened every time we were reading any sort of Shakespeare play. It was very particularly Shakespeare, but there were other things as well. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream is, is, if you're 13 and you're reading it and you don't get the sexual content, then it's probably going to go over your head until the next time you read it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so coming in and saying, oh, oh, girls, 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 take out your rulers and your pencils, blah, 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 let's rule the shit out. Obviously, she didn't say shit. Um, kind of draws your attention to, well, why can't I read that? <laughs> yeah. It, it does make it more kind of the forbidden fruit. <laughs> and it is an aspect. And, you know, we, ha we, did, we weren't just taught by nuns. We had regular teachers as well. And the argument was, well, if you keep taking some of the text out, soon it won't be worth reading. To which the reply was, well, perhaps you should consider something else. And it's like, well, this is on the English syllabus. They have to have an exam in a Shakespeare play. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's kind of petty and silly. But I think the thing with the Roald Dahl books is that, yes, there are aspects in those books which are probably a bit dated now. Hmm. And we'll, we'll go into that in more detail in a minute. But coming in with your metaphorical ruler and pencil because you've decided you don't like certain words... And taking them out and rewriting passages is kind of, at the very least, it's disrespectful. And not just to the author, who is dead and probably doesn't really care about it at this point, mm. um, but to his ongoing estate and also to the readers. Because you're, what you're saying is, I don't think you can cope with reading this. I don't actually credit you with enough intelligence to put this in its place as fiction. And I find that incredibly insulting. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's for me it's a complicated issue because i really have heard some very good arguments on both sides and um a very cynical part of me said that it, it says this was all just a massive um stunt uh because to to sell books uh, because there was a huge boom suddenly in people buying Roald Dahl books because they wanted to, to grab the ones um, that were un- unsullied. That, that were unsullied. And then the kind of the final conclusion was, okay, we won't change anything. And so a very cynical part of me is just that like, maybe someone said it in seriousness, but actually they they weren't as bought with the idea as kind of it was then framed. And either way... It was all essentially about making, being able to sell more copies of the books. And I can understand from a business perspective basically saying, right, there have been changes in the way that children's literature is, is kind of being done now. Um, and we want to, you know, m- kind of make sure these books continue to last. Now, the other, the other side of that is, well, okay, but classics do last. You know, um, and I don't think that Roald Dahl is going to disappear. But at the same time, um, clearly there had been a a droop in sales. So I think they were trying to, you know, revive it. They were trying to do something and it did come from a good place. I also understand, um, you know, people kind of saying, okay, well, actually, we've got different context now for certain for certain words, which are now, you know, very offensive or things like that where we are going to you know change uh we're going to change that for a modern audience um and i don't really mind that i mean i don't think anyone you know threw up nearly as much of a fuss when they changed one of the agatha christie books titles (laughs) because it had the n-word in it you know I do think there's a difference between removing a pejorative term, which has always been a pejorative term, Mm -hmm. and then going in and saying, well, actually, we've decided this word, which has many other meanings and connotations, is offensive because in the last five years it's become considered offensive. And it actually doesn't have any allusion to a specific thing, particularly in the context it's written. So, for example, going in and saying, we're taking out the black tractor from Fantastic Mr Fox. It's not the same as changing the N-word in an Agatha Christie title. Yeah, I, certainly it's... <laughs> they're definitely on different parts of the scale. I'm, I'm, I'm not comparing it in terms of sort of saying the severity. But I, I kind of am saying that I do understand that there has been this kind of call in children's publishing for more sensitivity um, towards, you know, um, the way that things have been portrayed up until now Uh, but does that mean we then edit things out from the past well if you are trying to sell books in the modern market and you want to sell them well they might think yes because they want to keep selling it if it is just about preserving history then no but they're thinking of of it from a, a business mindset they want to make it current. They want to keep selling stuff. I can kind of understand why they suggested it. But again, cynical part of me, it was they were never going to change as much as they claimed. 
I think it was. I mean, yeah. I, I do see that perspective and the yeah the marketing decision whatever, but I think there's a a, a bigger conversation here whereby, um, you know what everything has its time and yes anything that's truly classic tends to last even when it's got portions in it that are kind of like ooh that's a bit you wouldn't get away with that nowadays yeah um, for example the weird racism against the French in Jane Eyre. <laughs> I can't be the only person who noticed that. I mean, obviously, that's come off the back of the war with Napoleon um, and Nelson, etc., isn't it? So, um, but it, it now it just reads as okay. Well, you think this little girl's a bit more likely to be indolent and mentally deficient because she's French? That's a hot take, Charlotte. Okay, <laughs> but the book has endured as a classic for a good reason, and I think people would be the same with the Roald Dahl books or they would die out and if they're going to die out they perhaps should be allowed to. I realise the publishers don't want to hear this because they've been making money off them for decades and they don't want to stop making money off them but you know every everything has its season um, and not everything is evergreen. It's the same with Ina Blyton books. A lot of Ina Blyton books yes they've been recovered and they've had uh, Dick and Fanny changed to Rick and Franny and things like that, but they haven't undergone massive, massive edits, um, with the exception of Noddy, which probably did need a bit of an edit, to yes. be honest. Um, but they're nowhere near as popular as they were probably when I was a child, and again, nowhere near as popular as they were when my mother was a child, and she read them all as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, either, if, if it's dated, just let it fade into the background we don't need to go back and re-edit the past I think there's some sort of danger in re-editing the past as well because where do you go from books do you then go back to okay well let's look at history let's look at non-fiction let's sort of try and make this let's add footnotes to the things that happened and really opinionate everything yeah I think it's also I completely agree with you because I think there's also a danger in the fact that realistically when we look at history you, you have to kind of narrow your eyes at any bit of non-fiction or any bit of record keeping which has been kept. Because yes, um, there will be people who have kept records very much in you know trying to just be as accurate as possible. But everything is gonna be tainted by the perspective of the person who has gathered that data. Um, yeah. and all the political currents and, and and all of the stuff which is happening socially um, and sometimes actually the best way to really understand the zeitgeist of a period is to look at what people were enjoying what media were they enjoying what art were they producing and very particularly not just what was the what was certain class of people sort of enjoying but what was everybody enjoying i think it's one of the reasons shakespeare is enduring is the fact that it was written for everybody um and so it has levels and layers to it which really kind of give us an idea of what was happening politically particularly when applied with context um you know it is in some ways a better window into the past um into sort of like the social past than other things because, yeah. you know, we suddenly see, right, well, this survived because it was popular. And why was it popular in the time? Clearly because it was resonating with people at the time. And when you basically start to remove that, rewrite it, you are kind of 
destroying that connection with the past which is important for context it's a really really important idea particularly in social movements not to say not to create this narrative of it has always been good you know but instead yeah. to basically say look how far we've come because i think it's very easy to get incredibly depressed about the state of the world now um because sometimes we lose sight of actually how much progress we have made in certain areas um we just don't see it anymore because we're on the grind constantly for change yeah absolutely um and obviously word choice and meaning migration have it, it, it it's as you say it's come along mm-hmm. well i mean sometimes words literally don't mean the same as they meant a hundred years ago if we were talking sort of 1800s to around 19 12 in France and we were referring to a woman's honesty we're actually talking about her chastity so you know words literally change their meaning sometimes they change their meaning so they mean literally the opposite of what they originally meant yes yeah um and then the other thing is that you've also got the whole uh, other debate about translation um particularly you know texts and things which have been translated and it's and as Jules has said it's not just translated in in language from a different language but translated in time as well um so (laughs) there are layers upon layers upon layers upon layers um and it it just means that yeah sometimes if you want to kind of provide context for something you might want to make some changes or you might want to you know make it a little bit more obvious now in terms of shakespeare they don't change shakespeare but they provide these texts you know in schools and stuff like that which explains everything there's millions of spark notes yeah absolutely Um, but i do think that i kind of understand why they go well but these are just meant to be children's books we're just supposed to enjoy these um and again from the business side they're saying we don't want this to go into history because we want to keep making money from it (laughs) Yeah, although I, I mean, and I'm sure you're the same actually. Then people saying, "Oh, but they're just children's books. It kind of doesn't matter if we go back and re-edit them." Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of really denigrating and minimising the impact that children's books have because I grew up on Roald Dahl, and the books were literally coming out during my childhood, and like, I, I mean. <laughs> Several of those books came out during really, really difficult points of my childhood and those books kind of kept me going. Mm -hmm. And it's been the same with other books at other points during my life. So I don't know, perhaps it's more of an emotional reaction to it just because it's a case of, well, not because I think the works are pristine, because they're not. There are things I look back now and think, actually, you can tell you were a thoroughly unpleasant man, Mr. Doll, because it kind of comes out in your writing. But at the time, they were a lifeline. And I I don't know, I just think that any piece of art or literature should be allowed to stand or fall on its own merits. And, you know, when it's appropriate for it to fall, it should fall. Um, So, again, it's that when something's outdated, let it age out and something else take its place. I mean, we've got some brilliant new children's literature coming out. So let that have its season kind of thing. Yeah. And it is about basically saying there is a movement and... We see it particularly in children's books, and I've had sort of like a front row seat to this um, in basically saying, right, we need to we need to reshape narratives. And to be honest, children's books have kind of been like that 
from the start uh, yeah. because the change happens in children's books and it leaks into YA and then it leaks into adult um, you know in terms of sort of inclusivity in terms of new ideas being put forward in terms of complex social issues being dealt with I have seen that so much more in children's books than I've seen in, in a lot of adult books um, yeah aside from a few outliers in sci-fi and fantasy oh yes no of course I'm not saying yeah, generally it's only but I'm saying that the, there there is always kind of been a big movement within children's books it moves rapidly because it is shaping how things will grow from there um, and there is this kind of desire to basically do the best we can for each new generation of children so that they are not growing up feeling alienated by media but have more and more possibility and new ideas and are taught things like empathy and there has been an incredible amount of work towards i mean there are papers written about this about children's books particularly of, of for the age that Roald Dahl stuff is kind of aimed for you know the pre-middle grade and then the middle grade and stuff like that there's been this huge push towards teaching empathy um, yeah. which in a world like today that's I think incredibly important um, children's books in general have have tried to teach empathy for a very long time but really actually there have been more and more developed techniques in terms of saying how can we elicit empathy how can we develop empathy in children um, so that they don't grow up with inherent prejudices and stuff like that so I, I I'm all for this movement and it does mean that we have to retrain our brains as adults um, but does that mean then as Jules has pointed out that we go back and scrub something up to the standard of today which was written quite some time ago yeah, let, let's not think about how long ago since it came out in my childhood. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and I suppose the other thing you have to think is that in its day, Roald Dahl was quite cutting edge. That's why it was so popular. Yeah. Um, when his big competitor before that probably was Enid Blyton, who'd been at the top of the children's charts for several decades by that point. Yeah. He came along and said, no, he said to children, no, sometimes your parents are wrong. Sometimes the adults are the bad guys. Sometimes you have to be clever and brave and resourceful yourself. And you know what? You do actually have the strength to do a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, and here's some ridiculous words and humour as well. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, really, if you if you look at them objectively as an adult, they're kind of horrible books. Yes, though, I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. I will forever love The Enormous Crocodile. <laughs> Really? I thought you were going to say the BFG. Okay, okay, that's cool. I like the enormous crocodile. No, I, I do. I do like the BFG, um, and I, I like the um, uh, oh, what was it? So I like the BFG and the enormous crocodile, and I did enjoy the witches. But it's been a long time since I've read it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure there is a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be relooked at in that regard, but. Yeah, I was a small I mean, child. I'm just going to leave that there. But yeah, the enormous crocodile. I think it always just makes me smile. <laughs> I really liked the giraffe, the pelly, and me. I think maybe because it was ridiculous. You got this monkey, this pelican, and this giraffe basically setting up a window washing firm. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah I loved the witches as a child but it scared the bejesus out of me it was really really sc- I mean bear in mind I was like seven or eight when I read it but yes. I was really scared yeah also Matilda <laughs> Matilda uh, that came out when I was 10 and it, I've got the most cherished memory because I got it for Christmas that year and my mum and dad went next door to have drinks with the neighbours so I was left alone in my house which is literally next door um, with Matilda and a drink in the quiet with the dog and the cat and it's just like (laughs) one of the best Christmases ever (laughs) (laughs) so yeah but I don't want to say that my memories of Roald Dahl are untroubled they're not and it's not that I don't think there's some problematic stuff in there because there absolutely is I just think why not just do better as we go forward rather than let's keep rehashing the past and ignoring all these amazing new children's authors coming up Um, and I don't think it's just in in children's either I think you can start to get to the point where people are very critical of writers who've been writing for literally 40 50 years yeah and the fact that they held opinions at some point that are now not appropriate opinions to be held that sounds awful doesn't it uh, now opinions that they no longer hold because the opinions you hold in your early 20s are not the opinions you hold in your 40s generally unless you really become a stunted person and you you don't you don't grow in which case you've got bigger problems yeah absolutely i mean i'm i'm just if you look at terry pratchett's books now you know yeah. there usually comes a little war, you know a little warning in them saying this you know that the first few books of the discworld series were written in 19 whatever um late 60s wasn't it yeah <laughs> i think um it's like and therefore some of the ideas put forward um reference this you know or, or are reflective of this and the fact is that if terry pratchett was alive today um i believe that he would he would just be bowling forward with the times he was always very progressive he always had his finger you know on the pulse line um, yeah. And you see how his beliefs and his change—you uh, know—you sorry, you see how his beliefs and his understanding of stuff changes throughout the series as he kind of as the world cha- as the world progresses, and he follows on with that. Yeah, definitely. And to be honest, if you read the Tiffany Aching series of books within the Discworld, mm-hmm. and you finally get to the Shepherd's Crown at the end, the Shepherd's Crown was his last completed book, yeah. and it wasn't as completed as he wanted because obviously he died, but he that that entire book is kind of a love letter to humanity and his entire writing career was him wrestling with this incredible internalized rage against um the way people treated each other yeah and he found filtering that through the mask of humor was a way to sort of direct the rage in a way that made people think rather than turning it into a firehose of napalm which is what most of the internet seems to be concerned with yes um and this this at the end with the shepherd's crown it's kind of like I still don't have all the answers, but you know what? I kind of love my fellow man kind of thing. Yeah. It's incredible. I found it incredibly moving because I'd sort of followed the books all the way through. Um, with the exception of the wizard books at the beginning, they just didn't grab me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and you're absolutely right. The opinions he held in his 20s were not the ones he held at the end in his 60s and what have you yeah so people who think that your growing ends when you reach your 20s oh boy (laughs) no no i mean your frontal lobes are hopefully finished developing and then you've got a whole lot more growing to do so enjoy that yeah (laughs) i think back to my 20s now and i think 
in some ways I was so sure about certain things and that very sureness sort of concealed the fact that I was incredibly uncertain about an awful lot of my life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm the same. I look back at some of the stuff that I, I wrote or some of the opinions I had and they are just so contrary to how I feel now, not even that long ago, you know? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, your 20s are still, you can still see them in the rearview mirror if they're not that far behind you. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, where we're, we're or I think where I've certainly come to here is that, yes, please feel free to remove genuine pejoratives so that people can enjoy a text in all its historic problematic glory without feeling themselves insulted every other page absolutely mark twain we're kind of looking at you even though i know you didn't mean any of it hatefully (laughs) you were just writing for the time um but you know censorship where you're cutting great big chunks of the text and rewriting bits and pieces of it you know when you find yourself doing that then you are deciding what other people get to read and by extension what they get to think um, and it, it's where does that end and that's where I really have an issue with it and where I'll, I'll complain about things I don't want people to read books and feel alienated but at the same time I don't want people to read books and be told no don't think we'll do the thinking for you yeah and I do also think that it would be a slightly different thing if it was the author themselves basically saying I want to update this now yeah it's like i can't believe i wrote that yeah. Um, so yeah yeah because we, we will all feel like that at some point yes <laughs> and i i you know i can appreciate that an author basically saying actually this is not the story i wanted to tell and i want to i want to do something new um i think that's the nature of it but it is the fact that it's being done you know by someone else after he died and it's not like it's just an adaptation i I'm I'm all for adaptations. Um, I love a good adaptation, which basically says, right, this is the original story. But that only works if you keep the original story. Yeah. And what essentially with the publishers were trying to do um, was that we would have, unless some people already had copies, they would have lost the original stories. And okay, fine, books get lost over time. That's not a, you know that's not an issue that's not the issue the issue is the deliberate scrubbing um but again there's two sides of this and one is that yes i don't believe that's right historically i believe um it's important to maintain things as we've discussed but from a business perspective i can totally understand them saying we had a product um it is no longer uh, up to up to date with what's on the market we are going to change this product to keep it up to date so that we can keep selling it. And from a business perspective, you can understand why they suggested it and then why they, when there was this huge uproar, they didn't do anything and they got huge sales. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I agree. I'm not sure how deliberate that was, but it was definitely a consequence. Yes. Okay, let's move on to the Wired article. Yes. Which is what what pushed me over the brink. Um, All right, let loose, Jules. (laughs) I'm obviously, I'm not going to recap, recount the entire article. It's 5,000 words long. Uh, Basically, this journalist, Jason, Jason? Joseph Kehi, um, was looking, I think, for something to write about. And then went, hang on a minute, Brandon Sanderson's worth 
I don't know, ungodly millions off the back of his science fiction and fantasy writing. Mm -hmm. And nobody's really written anything very meaningful about him. So he solicited Brandon Sanderson and said, you know, I want to write about you. I want to come and meet the real you, etc. And he spent on and off five months at Brandon Sanderson's admittedly huge estate. Mm -hmm. Um hanging out with the guy regularly in the evenings, going to a theme park nearby that was run down that Sanderson intended to sort of do up, um, going out for dinner and speaking to his wife, his friends, his family, going along to all these things. Basically, he was treated like a member of the family. Yeah. And then the article that came out in Wired is entitled uh, Brandon Sanderson is your God, which is already a bit sort of, hang on a minute, what? Um, it's... <laughs> And it is just this really petty and uh, just, in, quite frankly, he everyone who could possibly, he this guy could insult, he is insulted in this article in either oblique or overt terms. Um, he's gone to conventions with Sanderson, which are admittedly Cosmere, you know, Brandon Sanderson's universe, mm-hmm. um, conventions where all the fans get together in cosplay, and he refers to the flat, the fans as sort of pale, doughy types that you would expect. And the women are slightly better put together with better cosplay type stuff. But mm-hmm. the whole thing is just too cringe kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so this guy who supposedly writes for a science fiction and fantasy specialising journal um, is sneering at the fans. Uh, Brandon Sanderson's fans. <laughs> well, yeah, basically sneering at fans in general because I don't know. Maybe he's one of these guys who just thinks that if it's it's only real science fiction, if it's literary. Yeah, that was the flavour I got. Um, the upshot of this is that he found Sanderson really boring. He said he spent ages trying to get to know him, and there was nothing there to get to know. And what it all comes out as. Brandon Sanderson isn't very interesting to write about, he, you know, because there's no skeletons in his closet. He doesn't take cocaine. He doesn't beat his wife um, kind of thing. No, that wasn't said in the article, but that is the impression you get. Right. And it is just so unbelievably rude. Um, can you imagine going and staying for five months at someone's house at their expense and they basically bring you into their family and then writing 5,000 words of shit talk about them, their families, their children, and everything they love, and publishing it. That's a lot of gall. <laughs> I mean, and then Sanderson came back on Reddit, basically calling the hounds off, because his fans were up in arms. I'm not even particularly a Sanderson f- a fan. I haven't read enough of his work to decide one way or the other. Um, but he just sort of came in and went, yeah, please, can you leave leave this guy alone? Um, he was writing what he obviously found a really difficult article, etc., etc. I'm a bit baffled by the content, but, you know, he had an article he had to write, and I'm sorry he didn't really find me interesting enough to write about. Um, although I find it a bit weird that he, that, that any writer could find anyone too boring to write about, because sometimes it's the weird little things that actually are interesting. Like, And Sanderson actually quoted, and you'll, you'll love this, Madeline, the guy who collects pins in, 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 in going postal. It's like, just that weird thing where you collect pins and it goes from there to collecting stamps. It's like, that's an interesting quirk. So, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I normally say to people, go and read it for yourself, see what you think. 
I'm in two minds because I don't want to support this guy. But honestly, if you want to read it for yourself, read it for yourself if you haven't already. Uh, it is just the biggest pile of crap, <laughs> insulting crap, kind of like, I'm writing for science fiction and fantasy fans, but not you, you fat pallid slobs. Ugh. Um, yeah. Superiority so like, complex much? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, in fairness, you have to say, well, people started talking about his article and it was read, so maybe he met his objective by just being a real dick. But I think you can... I honestly don't know how you can go and spend five months with someone like Brandon Sanderson and who has, you know, come up from basically nothing and making loads of money out of his, his writing and and not find a story in that on its own. I mean, the fact... I mean, if, you just said he was planning on sort of refurbishing a theme park. There's a whole article in that. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, the same. His suggestion was that, you know, this is all the ego of Sanderson. He sees himself as God, etc. And then he mischaracterises the entire Mormon faith at the end. Now, I know there are some really weird beliefs on the edge cases of Mormonism. Yeah. And I don't really know enough about it to comment too much. But I will say it's no weirder than any other religion. <laughs> and why would you have a pop at somebody's religion after you've just massively insulted them and then said... Yeah, the reason that he is this successful is because he genuinely believes he's your god, kind of thing. Read the article for the full context. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah. But I think, okay, where I kind of went with this was, okay, yes, there's the, you buy a duck and complain that it's not a horse. I mean, um, in general, most writers write, and most of us are introverts of some kind. So... Yes, if you talk to a writer and you want to talk to them about their writing, particularly the science fiction and fantasy ones, we're really invested in the worlds we build. And we will talk at length if you really get us going. Yes. You know, you get what you pay for there. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you have to be invested in that if you're going to spend that much time going there and writing about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um I suppose the broader scope of this article for me is that it seems to be symptomatic of people who don't engage in good faith. And what I mean by that is, I mean, everybody at some point who writes and publishes will get a bad faith reader, as in someone sees something in your blurb or whatever, or they see something in someone else's review that makes them go, oh, I hate that thing in a book. And instead of just walking on by, they read your book for the sole purposes of slacking it off yeah or maybe they don't even read the book they just write a review or one star it to slack it off because i don't know they don't like queer characters in that urban fantasy or whatever yeah i've i've definitely had that experience and i know that you have as well jules yeah and it's the whole professing opinions that maybe you don't even hold is the other side of it where it's a case of well i can get more people to watch my review or watch my youtube video or follow me if I'm really comically insulting over somebody rather than saying, actually, this person's kind of cool and I couldn't find anything wrong with them. This is the thing, is that this, like, really rose up, um, I remember, when I was kind of a teenager. Um, and obviously it's not a new thing, but certainly on the internet, you know, there were a lot of stuff, there was a lot of stuff that was kind of coming out that where reviews were very scathing in order to be entertaining you had things yeah. like um 
uh, Zero Punctuation, for example, who, I don't know if he's still going, but, you know, he, he would basically review video games and things like that. And the whole point was that it was injected with humour, he looked at the sort of the worst things, he poked fun at that stuff, but he also did acknowledge the things that were good. Um, and it was kind of done in, in good fun, as it were. It wasn't actually yeah. really done for the most part. Um, and, like, one or two people doing that, like, as, as in terms of style, are fine. But it really became a thing. And hell, even I fell into this trap of being like, ah, oh, yeah, it's better to just insult things. And then I kind of stopped and I looked back and I went, why? And I very much am more of the, if I don't like something... I just won't talk about it unless I feel like I have something to say, you know, really about it, that I can be critical about it. I mean, Jules and I have obviously talked about books or, or films or things like that where we found stuff that we didn't agree or didn't like, but we haven't kind of gone out entirely just to destroy something. No, um, we haven't then posted everything everywhere on the internet. I mean, yeah, I, I, said, to, <coughs> I said to Alan the other day that this is the one place where I'm actually really opinionated on the internet. Yeah. And, you know, people can pry that away from me out of my cold, dead hands kind of thing. But I don't feel the need for everyone to listen to me. People could just walk away from listening to me on this podcast if they want to. Yeah. And I think, and as we've proven in the past, we have also come on to the, to the show with opinions. And then other people have kind of said, well, but what about this? Or, you know, disagreed with us. And we have kind of changed our opinions. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're willing to be wrong. In fact, we've changed our own opinions. Yes. Sometimes we've we've said something, and then a year later we've come back and gone. Actually, I think it was a bit harsh there. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, if we talk about a court of thorns and roses, we 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 poke fun at a court of thorns and roses a lot. Now, I think part of the reason of that is that I mean, nothing we say is going to really affect Sarah J. Mass. She has got her no. fans. She's fine. We're not going to have an impact on you know on her book sales or anything like that um and even though Jules has com almost completely gone off of her you know I am also willing to say that I'm still still kind of engaged with what's happening in certain books because there are parts of it that I still like I'm still buying those things but I oh, I'm still gonna buy the next book I think we, we all know that the fact that I'm annoyed about that doesn't change the fact that I'm giving her my heart money yes. because I want to know what happens next yeah so we can both agree that clearly she's done something whereby we do want to know what happens next even though we're very annoyed by some of the decisions that she's made um, that's a very different kind of thing to basically just purposefully picking up a book because you are no you know you're going to get annoyed with it because you just want to be rude or cruel um, or tear something down um, by all means criticize things which you feel are worthy of criticism but to actively seek those things out it, just for the sake of being negative. That it's quite mean-spirited, and it's also not good for you, I think. <laughs> no, it's not. There's a YouTuber who, I, I mean, I've accidentally watched a couple of her videos now, and I, I'm not going to continue, and I'm not going to mention her name either, because I, I don't, again, I'm not doing a teardown here, but every single one of her videos is a negative take, not just on the book, but quite often on the author. Mm. And some authors, she's actually got a series of why this author is a bad person because of what she's written or things that she's done 10 years ago in the past, 20 years ago in the past. And I think she gets quite a lot of views for this sort of stuff. 
but I look at her and I think you're just not very good at choosing books you like are you because everything you do is negative what are you putting out in the world um, obviously she's getting the views she's probably getting the advertising money from YouTube but I just find that attitude towards life quite depressing why wouldn't you want to read books you like and follow authors who you find to be at least semi-admirable as far as you know yeah and again it's a very different thing from reading a book and then finding out that the author isn't very is, is isn't a very nice person and sort of saying actually I don't want to kind of continue reading those books and then defending your position um but just when everything you put out is negative uh, it's very much done on purpose it's mean-spirited um and also it, it kind of ties in with that whole your favors problematic it, it's the whole sort of look at me i'm taking something which is popular and i am basically lording over the fact that all of you people are wrong and if you are engaging with this you are wrong and the author is wrong and everything is wrong um, and it is going into a book or a series or anything like that with bias and therefore finding all the bad things and the problem is that if you go into anything with bias you will find your bias almost always being confirmed yeah, absolutely. Um, all those people who read Twilight when Twilight Mania was at its height and actually they've come out later and said we actually secretly kind of really enjoyed those books but it, you know, we were being edgy and cool by saying we hated them at the time and a couple of them have even come forward and put up YouTube videos apologising to Stephanie Meyer for all the things they said and all the things they accused her of yeah. which were completely unjustified. And that's great, and I'm glad you've all grown as people, but what a shitty thing to do in the first place. Yeah, but, I, you know, I, I do get it. I, again, I was, I fell into that as well, basically saying, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, put this down on things like that. I remember as a teenager, I actually wrote a paper on Twilight and about how the fact that it is not um, literary it's not literary fiction or something like that. I was basically tearing it down. Now, to be fair to my younger self, I, w I did kind of also tr try to sort of balance out and say, but it's not supposed, it's not trying to be. Um, yeah. And the whole argument I was making is that at the time there was this kind of this sense of, well, um, there's two sides of it's a work of art uh, versus it's absolute rubbish. And the reality was it's, it was a YA book. It was a yeah. children's book and for what you know and yes there were some ideas and stuff like that which were actually potentially a little bit dangerous um which might need you know a little bit of kind of consideration if it was being written today but it also wasn't nearly as as awful as kind of it was being put out to be and it was and the reason why it got so much criticism was because people were picking it up and saying you're enjoying this you're enjoying this there are things like Moby Dick in the world and you're enjoying this and I'm like you can't compare those things and people yeah, read that's... it with the bias of saying this is crap this is bad for our children and they found all the reasons for it to be bad yeah and I guess that kind of brings us on to the final point on this little section which is um, if you haven't read the brilliant Neil Gaiman article, George R. R. Martin is not your bitch, I suggest you look that up and read it. <laughs> but essentially, it's about 
what do authors really owe their readers? And authors do owe some, some things to their readers. They don't necessarily owe their readers great big chunks of their life, health and well-being, yeah. including their mental health. Um, so yes, and as frustrated as I am that there is at least one book I've been waiting for now for nearly nearly 27 years, and I'm still waiting for it, Loki. <laughs> Um, and I get that people are frustrated that there, you know, there are there are fancy authors who, are like, yeah, this book hasn't come out yet. George R. R. Martin has not yet produced *The Winds of Winter*. Blah blah blah. Oh yeah, Patrick Rothfuss. Apparently, his third book in the the um, in his trilogy, *The Kingkiller Chronicles*, is coming out later this year. So anyone who's re reading that series is really excited, and they've been waiting for it for like twelve years. Yeah which is a lot and obviously it's something I feel strongly about because I don't want people to wait for the next Harker and Blackthorn book for longer than six months so <laughs> I've gone the other direction but at the same time working myself to the bone and almost killing myself is not the best way to serve my readers either yes um because we have lives outside of our writing yeah <laughs> lives and problems and all sorts of stuff <laughs> Although I have to say, one of the things that I personally, very personally, took offence at with that Wired article was the fact that this guy was mocking Brandon Sanderson for the fact that he likes to write every day. That not so much that he likes to write, he has to write. He has to get the words out. He has to get them on paper. His idea of a holiday is to have more time to write. And I'm like, I really identify with that. Yeah. And apparently it's a condition called um, graph mania I believe mm. where you just have to write and I'm like if that is if that is a disorder it's a relatively harmless disorder why are you bringing that shit out you know yeah don't judge me <laughs> <laughs> it, it only becomes a it only becomes a negative thing when it has negative impacts on yeah your when you life. can't when you literally cannot stop yeah uh, anyway, let's move on to the last little bit, which should be relatively straightforward because yeah. everyone's got examples of this, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of the absolutism echo on which is, you know, largely on the Internet. So if yeah. you're not with me, you're against me. Yeah. Now, first of all, let's remember that everything is very loud on social media. Uh, but the reality is that the vast bulk of the world's population doesn't really engage with social media other than to say hi to friends, plan social events, or follow favourite celebrities. This is particularly the case with Twitter. Um, Twitter yeah. has been kind of at the forefront sort of recently of, of big kind of statements, big movements, and has kind of, you know, articles then going out and saying, people are saying this, people want that, and I'm like, no, there is a small group of people on Twitter who are being very loud and it looks like a very large number but the reality is that twitter in terms of sort of the big kind of the big social media accounts is actually one of the smallest there is it, it is not really a good point of reference in terms of being a proper um you know a reflection of what society is it is often a small very loud minority of people and you don't know how much of an agenda they have. It is also often um, people of a certain age, and this is not me insulting 
teenagers. This is not me insulting people in their twenties, but um, the whole argument of ah, oh, you're more in, you're more of the left when you're younger and you go to the right. I, I have you know different different opinions about that, but there is something to be said about the fact that there are teenagers and and people in their twenties and stuff have a lot of energy. They have this very kind of idea of the world they're setting forward there's you know these big big kind of purposes but also they are more likely to be swept up into mobs and into crowds because of the way that their brains are developing because of the way that they are at that certain age this is not an insult on their intelligence or anything of the fact um and it's not only people within their 20s either of course um but the reality is that as we've just demonstrated there have been so many people who've come forward about twilight and said yeah i got swept into that um the social pressures etc me finding my identity at at that time etc um that continues to happen to varying degrees basically until you sort of you really hit your end 20s until your cerebral cortex has kind of really started to solidify etc um so if those are the people who are the ones who are being very very loud that's an even smaller perspective actually yeah i mean the other thing to consider obviously is that those people being very very vocal and very loud on the internet are often very unhappy and they're not necessarily shouting about the thing they're actually unhappy about it's usually a substitute yes the the girl who um created the uh, your your fave is problematic you know yeah. recently released an, an incredibly moving article about how when she created it she was going through this huge cycle of grief because she'd lost her sister um and she ended up creating this movement which is still kind of alive today um and it is incredibly negative and how much she regrets that um and again this is if you're listening to this and saying well you know i'm I'm like that. You're just insulting me. You don't understand. We're not saying that in the least. That's not what this is about. We're saying that when you see these large kind of vocal things, um, particularly people getting swept up, there are a lot of people who get pulled into certain ideas, certain movements based on what they see rather than on what they themselves have read. Or if they do say right well i'm going to read it they are going to they go into it with bias and we cannot erase our bias entirely we will always read th- things through the social lenses which have been dictated by our life experiences but you know when you look for problematic stuff you will find it one way or another yeah absolutely a section that is very active and mm-hmm. loud um, is ironically the book community, mm. you know, generally full of introverts or people who would prefer to stay in and read a book, strangely enough. Yeah. Um, but they are very loud on the internet. And I think part of that is because books are a very personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, readers become extremely attached to favourites and favourite characters and favourite authors. And conversely, a book that promises them one thing and delivers something else often provokes disproportionate rage or disgust. Yes. <laughs> And, I, you know, I understand this. Um, I had a great question from one of my readers recently in, a, in an email, and it was, how can you tell the difference between something that... Um, how can you tell the difference 
in, as an author as to whether you've made your readers angry because your characters have acted out of character or because they've acted in character and it's just annoying. And it's like, basically, if you as a reader are angry with the characters, then they've acted in character, but they've just done something you don't like. If you read them and you're angry with the author, then the author has not treated the characters correctly and they've acted out of character. Yes. Is my general opinion on that. Yeah. Um, and I, I do understand. I mean, my a lot of my sort of like grumbling about Sarah J Mass is the fact that I feel she changed directions and she did it in a way that kind of alienated a lot of her readers. So the readers who are more on the fantasy fringe side of things like me, mm-hmm. she kind of threw us off the train. And it's quite difficult not to be angry with the author when they do that, even when, clearly for her, it was more beneficial to go in the direction she went in. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I also understand the perspective that if, you, if it's been many years and you're writing something, characters can change. I've seen yeah. that in my own writing where I've suddenly gone, actually, I need to rework this because this is working better for me. So, you know... There are some. You've got. There's got to be a little bit of a natural give at the same time, um, but with regards to kind of then how people are on the internet and how aggressive they can become, I actually teach a class all about sort of publishing on social media, and I always do an experiment with my my class. So first of all, I make sure that everyone's comfortable with what's happening. I, I get them to sort of look at the person next to them. And I say, right, this is what you're going to do. So you're going to turn, you're going to look this person next to you straight in the eye. And I do it relatively near the beginning so that they're, most of them don't really know each other. They turn, they look at the person next to them. And I say, right, I want you to look them straight in the eye. I want you to say, you're ugly. And the looks of horror on their faces, <laughs> um, the majority of them can't do it. One or two do do it but they do it in a (laughs) you're ugly kind of way they make it into a joke yeah and I said why did you struggle with that and they said well it's mean it's it's cruel and I said so why is it that people on the internet can turn around and say things like you should kill yourself because you don't pair the people that I pair in this book um and it's because most of the people who say those things would not say it to someone's face They wouldn't say it to someone's face because suddenly your empathy is engaged. You are seeing a real person. On the internet, everything sort of becomes less real. When it's on paper, when you're on your own, it's less real. It's kind of all in your head, Um, which is another reason why whenever you see aggression, whenever you see anger, whenever you see these large opinions on screen... um, they are often magnified because the person who is writing them is on their own or else they are with other people who are all shouting the same thing and they have not had the chance to stop look at another person in the eye and actually talk about things because the reality is that most people actually are willing to kind of shift their position Um, And you can have two people saying, well, no, I pair this character, I pair this character, or this is good, um, or this is bad. And if you put them in a room together and you've got them talking, they might suddenly find that they're friends. Um, And suddenly, because of that, they go, oh, well, I guess I don't agree with that, or, oh, I guess I didn't think of it this way. Um, But it, it isn't this bashing of heads. It is this 
moulding of opinions. So any time you see stuff like that on the internet, you've kind of got to narrow your eyes a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's ground zero. That's where we basically start from. Yeah. And then add in things like political ideologies and wait for the explosions. Yes. <laughs> um, at which point you get this absolutist mentality whereby either you wholeheartedly endorse someone and agree with what they say, or you are the enemy. And if that person is sufficiently powerful or part of the cause du jour, you may end up cancelled for having a slightly different opinion. Um, that's, I, would, I was about to say that's an oversimplification. Actually, it's not an oversimplification. That is essentially what can happen. <laughs> Yeah, it is the very troubling deification, deifi deification of human beings, where it's like, oh, we really like this person, we really like this celebrity, we really like this author, put them on a pedestal, put them on a pedestal, put them on the pedestal, and then they do something which is just human. And it's like, they are not God! Tear them from the pedestal, throw them in the mud! And it... <laughs> yeah. I think there was a journalist who actually had some journalistic integrity, mm -hmm. um, opposed to the other guy, um, who said, yeah, that there is kind of like this cycle of, of ownership and dismissal whereby you go, I love this, I own this, I control this, oh my god, I don't control this, I hate this, I must destroy this. Mm. And you see that in sort of mac you know microcosm within the bookish community, definitely. Yeah. Um, now, we're going to steal it clear of big contentious topics here but we do want to give an example um by taking a look at what goes on in the bookish community yeah and it might make you think yeah uh, so our first example <laughs> jane austen versus stephen king i mean sorry the jane austen fan club versus stephen <laughs> king constan readers <laughs> yeah uh for reference i'm a member of both these groups because that is how big a nerd i am uh the first time i sort of came out into the open in the Jane Austen fan club online and ventured an opinion it was like two massive tidal waves both came in from either side and swept over my head I started a huge argument without meaning to just because I was like it's the Jane Austen fan club this will be lovely it'll be like having a cup of tea with friends it wasn't like having a cup of tea with friends okay it was like being hit in two hit in the middle of two tsunamis at the same time <laughs> and it was like oh my god everyone has this and i do too but not enough to get into a fight with someone on the internet over it but this huge emotional connection with the books and me coming in and saying well actually colonel brandon wasn't such a great guy i'm kind of waiting for those title waves again right now <laughs> um look at the way he 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 refers to himself with i statements etc you know i had i had examples from the text and it was like what do you guys think? Thinking, we'll have a nice little discussion about this. No, okay, no. Do not go into the Jane Austen fan club and start having opinions about the worthiness of characters, okay? Unless you want to be in the middle of a punching match. Yes. Now, this is a very different thing than if you, you know, I've seen cases where people have gone on to tags or groups which are dedicated to a character or something like that, or dedicated to a book or a series. And then they've basically just said, this is bad, this is terrible, um, and then been surprised when they kind of get swamped. <laughs> There's a difference between going to the We Love Horses, you know, club and arriving saying, and what saying, about donkeys? You know, <laughs> or just, be, but just sort of saying, horses suck, and then being surprised when people aren't happy, to going to a We Love Jane Austen and saying, 
I'm not sure I'm like, um, this is how I feel about this character because there's a big, you know, you can feel something about a character and say, I'm not sure they're a very nice character or a very nice person. That doesn't mean they're not a good character or that or it's an insult. Yeah, or that you yeah. didn't love the book or anything like that. <laughs> um, I want to compare this to the Stephen King's Constant Readers fan club and, oh my God, I don't think I've ever met a nicer pleasanter kinder more well-adjusted group of people in my life anywhere both online or offline and now i want you to consider the subjects of stephen king's books yeah which are, <laughs> which are nearly always baseline horrific or disturbing or just really unsettling and you can go in there and say i mean i've i've said i waited because i learned from my jane austen experience <laughs> but i waited a few months before i you know someone was saying okay what's your least favourite Stephen King book? Not in an Jean provocateur way, just in a case mm. of let's all compare notes. And someone said Bag of Bones, and I was like, actually, I really loved that one. I'm sorry it didn't work for you. And they were like, oh, I'm glad it worked for you. And it was, that was it, that was it. Yeah. And then I said, I actually don't really like Carrie that much. Um, it's an, it's no case story, but I think the problem was I'd already encountered his better work before I read Carrie, and it it just isn't as good. It's his first book. And most authors' first books are not brilliant compared to the rest of their body of work. Yeah. And nobody shouted me down. Nobody was mean. Nobody told me I was stupid. Yeah. Some people are just kind of like, oh, that was my favourite. But okay, if it didn't work for you, what do you think about this one? Yeah, I, I have a friend who is, um, you know, really likes very dark horror kind of fiction stuff. Really, I really, I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> really horrible stuff, which like I just cannot stomach at all. I'm like, nope, that that's not my that's not my cup of tea. I'm 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 too scared all the time of all these things. I don't want the gore. I don't want the violence. I don't want any of that. Um, but you know, uh, <laughs> this friend basically talks about how within the kind of the the Discord or the stuff you know that they have, um, the community is incredibly nice. They're very understanding, they're very sweet, um, they don't have these massive rows or arguments, um, and it compares to kind of some of the more sort of, <laughs> some of the fan fan groups and things like that you see for kids fiction, where people will tear each other apart. I know. And a part <laughs> of me just goes, is it, is it because of... <laughs> Is it just because with the dark stuff, everyone's like, to be honest, we're kind of exercising our demons. You know, we've got all the catharsis with the horror stuff, so we don't have any anger left. <laughs> no, I, th I think there is an element of that. Uh, I'm going by the Stephen King fan club, but also discussions I've seen online. I quite like, if I'm in the mood for it, some really dark type horror as well. And yeah. I'm okay with gore. If it's, I mean, I will, I will do little cackles of glee if it's the right kind of yeah thing for me i mean obviously there's some gross things that i don't like but generally speaking i'm like yeah <laughs> this is great yeah um and i think you're right i think it's a case of yeah there there's a huge amount of catharsis to be had from that kind of horror and then you have the discussion and it's kind of like i don't need to shout at anybody i'm cool because <laughs> <laughs> actually the thing you're shouting about has already been exercised by that <laughs> that thing <laughs> It gives you a, I don't know, maybe it gives you a different sense of proportion. But I did find it, I thought it was amusing to say, let's compare these two fan clubs I belong to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, at the end of the day, books and reading are very personal. And 
readers can feel attacked if someone else is someone else um, disses or, or, or kind of puts down their favourite um, works or even points out some legitimate issues with it because um, it can feel like a you yourself are being attacked because you've enjoyed it and this is especially yeah. true for younger readers um, though I mean I don't think either Jules or I would exclude ourselves from that um, you know I know that I have <laughs> I've, talk, I've talked to Jules about this and you know I'm going to openly admit it I've talked to Jules about the fact that uh, again A Court of Thorns and Roses I'm very invested in Lucian as a character and because I'm invested in Lucian as a character I'm invested in him and Elaine because I can't see how things are going to work out or be happy if that yeah. doesn't kind of go in that direction which means that a part of me gets I suddenly went why am I getting so unreasonably angry about other people saying no it's all about uh, what's his Asriel? Asriel because I, yeah. I never connected with Asriel and I suddenly was like I felt, found myself getting really angry and then I was like why the hell am I getting so angry them preferring that is absolutely no reflection on on me or my worth or anything like that just because I happen to associate with a different character but a part of me was just there like I feel like they're saying you when they were saying Lucian is a bad character they were saying you are a bad person um he doesn't deserve happiness and things like that. Um, and, you know, that was when I'm in, I was in my 20s. <laughs> so it's, like, it's not just, you know, sort of teenagers or anything like that. We can all fall into it, particularly if we really love something. Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, remember um, a, a scathing review of a book I loved at that time. Mm -hmm. and I was about 18, I think. And I don't know what it was when I was sort of 18. I can't... Bear in mind, social media didn't really... No, it didn't exist at all when I was 18. What we're talking about, the internet was just about accessible. Um, and reading this review, I was kind of like... It was like being shoved off a wall kind of thing. Yeah. In the sense of, oh my God, I'm not allowed to like this anymore because this person thinks it's bad. And I think I, I remember sort of walking around that day feeling really troubled because, well... It can't be a great book. This person doesn't think it's a great book because of X, Y, and Z. And it, it, by the end of the day, I was kind of like, hang on a minute. This is a really stupid way to think about things. I wouldn't let anyone else tell me what to think about, you know, films or going on long walks or wanting to go to this club over that club. So mm. why the hell would I get that, you know, upset about someone not liking a book that I really loved? It's stupid. But I think unconsciously this is something that everyone goes through as a as kind of like a teenager or early 20s whereby you love it therefore it's brilliant therefore everyone must think it's brilliant oh god someone's challenging your opinion ah we can't cope with that um uh they must be bad or you were wrong yeah it's gonna be one of those two things and there has been kind of this moral haze which has been applied to it um, yeah. Obviously, this is a very extreme example, but I think it's a very good one, is the whole thing with Harry Potter at the moment. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, a lot of people are now saying, well, I just, I cannot engage with Harry Potter anymore. I just can't do it. Um, I, I'm one of these people where I just suddenly find I cannot, I, I don't want to buy any more of the content. I don't want to support it or anything like that. But there was this kind of, you saw this movement of people peering up and saying, we were saying it was horrible years ago, and we were right. We were absolutely right. This is terrible. And, and 
this idea of that you now need to say, oh, I didn't really enjoy it as a child or, or things like that. It didn't have that much of an effect. And there was this terrible pressure, I think, within me. And the worst thing, I think, is that this has been sort of put forward as in, like, if you're a minority, you're vindicated. But there were a lot of people who were part of minorities, myself included, who owe an incredible amount to the Harry Potter books. Um, you know, in terms of how we developed, in terms of a lot of emotional comfort and things like that. And as much as I try to sort of like close that door, the reality is I can't. And I, we need to be accepting of a world where you can say, yes, it was okay for you to have loved those books as a child. It was okay for there to have been, you know, a huge impact. Um, you know, you don't have to feel ashamed of that. Um, it doesn't, and it doesn't reflect who you are now or how you decide to approach things now. Um, <laughs> but there has been this kind of th this this massive sort of stamp put on it, which is like we need to erase this. And not just erase it now, erase it throughout your history. Um, and we're I'm about to censorship again. Yeah, and, we're, and we, it, it, as we say, it comes right back to the censorship issue um, and trying to censor your own past, which is dangerous. I mean, for the record, it's perfectly possible for people to have different opinions about Harry Potter and different opinions about the author herself. Yes. And for everybody to still get on. If you still love Harry Potter, good. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, and nobody else should ever get to tell you where your line is. Um, the line, obviously, is something I've mentioned before, as in that's where, um, for you, the author has gone so far over the line, you can now not engage with their content. For me, it's finding out uh, an author is actually a child sex offender. Yeah. And I learned that pretty early in my reading career. So <laughs> that's where my line is. Having a different opinion from me on certain things will not necessarily put the, put North out to pasture, and I will not be told by the people that I should hold that opinion about them. Yeah. Um, Though, again, you can also... The, the reality is that for some people where there is that line and they've drawn that line, it might mean it might be as strong an issue for them which says, actually, it, it upsets me so much, I, don't, I can't even engage with it, and I don't want to engage with people who are openly engaging with it as well everyone's going to be different um we just have to sort of i think we just have to be as kind as we possibly can to one another yeah. and not I mean, try and scrub things not scrub things but and also allow some grace i think if you say i don't want to engage with somebody who does hold a different opinion to me mm -hmm. not even whether they're you know not even in a case of well they're openly engaging with something that i now find painful and I can't engage with them at those times, but I can't engage with them at all. That's, I think that is potentially a bit of a problem further down the line, but then everybody's got to have their own opinion on these things. Yeah, and fine. And also, everyone, we don't, we, everyone has their own wounds, and we, you know, I just, I, I can't say, I cannot step forward and say this is the correct form of behaviour. Uh, because the reality is that I can only speak from my own experiences um, and my own experiences were that I loved Harry Potter as a child. It had a profound effect on me. 
um, it really helped to develop who I am now, not just as a writer, but as a person. Um, and that I am being kind of pushed into this sense of guilt because of that, um, because of something that I enjoyed as a child. Um, and I, I just don't think it's right to push that because not least a lot of the other people who took a, a great deal of comfort from Harry Potter as children were like me, minorities who felt strange or different um, and just couldn't connect with the world in the way that other people were doing. So yeah, it's a complicated issue, but it goes to show how kind of these things can be conflated. Yeah. Um, you absolutely don't have to adopt someone else's opinion on something if you don't share it. Yeah. But also the answer to someone not agreeing with you is not that they are evil and must be cancelled. Um, because chances are for most, all but the very few people, your core values, the things that are actually important, are a Venn diagram with a lot of overlap. You can easily meet in the middle and still disagree on authors and books and things, I think is what I'm getting at. And I do see a lot of what I consider pettiness where people say, no, I can't engage with you, um, you're cancelled, etc. Or instead of saying, well, I can't engage with you on that issue and I'd rather that was something we didn't talk about, which is a slightly more mature way of dealing with things. Yeah. I also think there's something to be said about actually looking at the opposing arguments. Um, as long as they're being put forward as arguments, this is not about getting into scrap fights or having people sling ins insults at each other or slurs or anything like that. I mean, looking at the opposing arguments, because actually it will help you, at the very least, understand your position better. And simply drawing a line is how extremism develops. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are very few things, I think, where you can just, or where you probably should just draw a line. It's very different from me saying draw a personal line because it's it's kind of affecting you and you don't want to engage with it at the moment. Yes. Uh, to drawing a line ideologically and then trying to get loads of people into your little army. Yes. And doing teardowns, that's a completely different thing altogether. Um, we all need to allow each other more grace, yeah. to listen more and disagree more gently you'll win far more people over if you lead them by the hand than if you try to drag them kicking and screaming. Terry Pratchett was absolutely bang on the money with that one. Hmm. Um, the other thing is, let's have a sense of proportion, because when you step back, a book is a wonderful thing, but it's a book. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I am as guilty as everyone else of having that initial knee-jerk, how dare you attack something I love, you're attacking me personally thing. And then I dial it back a bit and think, don't be so ridiculous. So they don't like sense and sensibility. It doesn't matter. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, by that same token, it, it's the, you know, a book is just a book. Um, <laughs> you, you deciding whether you like it, you don't like it. Um, and also how important is it to you at any given time? Um, you know, some might say, is this book so important that it comes before everything else? Um, are you are you going to die on this hill? You're going to burn bridges because of this book? Um, or are you going to basically say, okay, it's just a book? Um, and kind of you are, you have to be the ones who decide that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we've 
overrun a tiny bit, but mm-hmm. basically this has been not maybe our most structured podcast, but we've dealt with quite a few little issues. And if you guys have opinions on this, we'd love to hear them too. Perhaps you've got a different perspective. Yeah. Um, drop us a line. Yeah, we we always want to hear more. And as we've said, we are always going to be limited by our own experiences, our own perspectives from where we are from. Um, and we are very, very happy and encourage other people to put forward how they feel um, because it will affect how we look at the topic going forward and we thank you very much for that and we also thank you very much for listening Uh, before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and this week jules has got one for us yes um after our our little discussion about horror versus jane austen um I want to recommend The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Um, I think I might be a little bit in love with Grady Hendrix as a writer. I basically, I can be a bit hit or miss on how horror writers handle their characters, but I love what he does with his characters. I'm currently working my way through his entire backlist. Mm. Um, And The Southern Book Club Guides to Slaying Vampires is a really thoughtful, incisive look at the way, particularly during the 90s in Southern America, so I say Southern America, not Southern America, but the Southern Northern part, sort of the, I can't remember the name of the place because I'm having a bad name day. <laughs> North America, but the South part of North America. <laughs> that was really helpful, wasn't it? I'm going to move on The Midlands. On the, Midlands <laughs> the Midlands of America, not that you have them. But. The South, the South shall rise. Um, <laughs> I've completely derailed myself now. (laughs) Uh, Basically, how it's very easy as a child, for example, to look at women pushed into kind of like a housewife role and think that they have very small lives and what they do doesn't matter very much. And this this book, the, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, looks at these, you know, families that are quite nuclear with a wealthy male breadwinner and the women staying home and being homemakers and raising the children etc how pressured that is and this book club is kind of their their retreat where they they get to just say whatever they want kind of thing um which doesn't bear take into account a vampire coming into their very sort of (laughs) almost gated community thinking i kind of like it here but i can't access the infrastructure (laughs) And then one of the women helping him access the infrastructure until he's so embedded that everything is really going tits up kind of thing. Yeah. Um, the vampire is proper vampire in the sense of really nasty. He's he's not a hunk. He's not a kind of like, hey, this is a sexy guy and he's just working his way around all the women. It's like, no, this is an actual predator and he feeds on children. And, you're, you know, you've bought a little bit of time for your children, but he's quite happy to take the children from the black community down the road kind of thing. It does not pull its punches looking at the nastiness and the disparity in terms of of privilege. Yeah. And why we should always care if we've invited a predator into our midst kind of thing. And the women, these these housewives, turn out to be absolutely badass. Really, really amazing. In fact, the book starts with, you know, how they're, they're really average women. You've seen them everywhere. You probably never even gave them a second thought. Well, every single one of these women 
will soon be covered from head to toe in blood. And I'm like, okay, that's an interesting start. (laughs) Um, I don't think this book is going to be for everyone because there is some nasty content in there. But I really enjoyed it. I had this sort of mawkish glee going on the entire time, even with some of the most unpleasant parts of it. Um, And generally, I just recommend Grady Hendrix because every single one of his books I've read so far, and I think I've read four in a row, not in a row, but, you know, within the last month or so, has been an absolute hit. So he clearly does something. Um, He does the Stephen Stephen King thing where no matter what the subject is, you really, really care about the characters, even if you don't like them. Yeah. And that's always a hit for me, horror-wise. So give his books a go, but give that one a go especially. <laughs> it's really <laughs> gross. And on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.